Holy Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come and be equipped. Thank you that we have the, the freedom to do so because of you, because of your provision for us in so many ways, and for those who have sacrificed themselves on our behalf to defend the freedom that you have provided. Would you help us this morning to, to absorb what is taught for your purposes, for the advancement of your kingdom, for your glory, and for those whom you are after? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we are finishing up the third week in competing worldviews. I, I took a little detour last week on the problem of evil because this week being Memorial Day weekend, I didn't know if there, were, there was going to be a dip in attendance, and I definitely wanted the maximum amount of people for the problem of evil. So this week, we're going to finish up finish up the worldviews that we're taking, the 30,000-foot view. I mean, the, the, what I'm covering in these worldviews is not even scratching the surface because, it, you know, we, we have to move fast on these things. So there's always abundant resources to be found. If you know people who are involved in these worldviews, if you have family members, um, because we want to minister and reach out and be effective ambassadors for Christ with these people. So we have four worldviews to cover this morning, so I am going to talk fast and you guys have to listen fast. And, and due to that, unlike other weeks, I put bullet points up here for some of the bullet points that I'm going to be covering just so that I can move a little bit faster and you guys will be able to kind of look at what I'm going to be covering at the same time. So the first worldview we're going to cover is Hinduism. Now, one nice thing about um, what has happened in America over the centuries is that these people from all over the world come to us we, for those who are called to be missionaries and go around the world, that's fantastic, but we have people coming to us with these different worldviews that we can minister to. We might know them at work, they might be neighbors, they might be family members, like I said, and, and they are right here on our doorstep, so we have this opportunity. Hinduism has been around, of course, for thousands of years. It is a pantheistic worldview. What pantheism means uh, is that they believe that God is, that, that not only God is all, but all is a part of God. So the universe is an aspect of God. You are an aspect of God. The trees, rocks, literally everything is an aspect of God. So it's, it's very different from a theistic worldview, where a theistic worldview believes that there is a personal creator God who is separate from his creation. Uh, I... Um, when I was talking to my brother several weeks ago, and I referenced this conversation in um, one of the one of the classes, he made this reference, and I know that he is not well versed on all of these worldviews, but he made this reference that he said we are all aspects of God. Now that's a pantheistic statement. He doesn't realize he's just making this statement, but but to say that we are all aspects of God, some would say we we are living in the mind of God. 
And so this is, this is what it means to be a pantheistic, to, to have a pantheistic worldview or what pantheism is. So because of that, everything is an illusion because we are all just aspects of God. What I mentioned last week in uh, The Problem of Evil was that on a, on a pantheistic worldview or a Hindu worldview, they believe that suffering also is an illusion. So you are an illusion, I'm an illusion. It's, a, it's, an, uh, it's certainly a different way of looking at things, but it's, it's important to to understand where it is that they're coming from. And having said that, it's also really important to note that, that Hinduism is not monolithic. The, I mean, when you have 330 million gods to choose from, there's a lot of variety. You can, you can kind of pick and choose a la carte, whatever you like. And that is partially why there is such an appeal in the West now, as this is, as this more Eastern worldview is coming into the West. We like, in, in America, we like our autonomy. We like things to be customized the way we want. We like to, we like to call our own shots and be our own boss. And so the, the Hindu worldview is very customizable to what you like. So there isn't one, this is what Hinduism is, period. I mean, there are some, for example, uh, they, you've noticed that there's, if you go to an Indian restaurant, you're not going to find beef because typically they don't eat cows because cows are sacred. But some Hindus do eat beef. So some are vegetarian. Um, I even saw this, <laughs> I, I saw this one, there was a, a temple to a goddess that I don't remember the name because there are way too many to remember, but um, the, the temple was literally filled with tens of thousands of rats because they, they believe that this goddess, um, this, this one god was going to come and kill the child of this goddess and she said, well, I'm powerful too, so I'm gonna turn my child into a rat so you can't kill it, so they believe that all of these rats are descendants of this goddess. So there's, you know, 20 to 25,000 rats and people will come and they'll worship at this temple and they'll, it depends, it depends on your, your level of comfort here, but some people will come and sit there and they'll let the rats, you know, crawl all over them. And, but like I said, that's not, that's not a major portion of Hinduism, but that's just one aspect to, to, demonstrate the, the wide variety in Hinduism. So Hinduism also has the caste system. So if you live in India, you are, you are a member of a caste. You cannot get out of it, um, which is why, interestingly enough, the, the lower castes, they, they are coming to Christ more and more and more because in, in India, and the upper castes really don't like that because in Christianity, of course, we're all equal. There is no caste system in Christianity, and so they recognize that. So they're no longer willing to be the slaves of the rest of the, of the society in India because when you, when you come to Christ, you know, you're, you're a child of the king at that point. And so there's, there's more and more strife that is occurring in India as more and more of these lower caste members come to Christ. It's, it can be a problem. Um, karma is also a thing in, in uh, Hinduism. 
Now, with karma, as, as we see with, as we will see and have seen with all of these different worldviews, it's very works-based. You, uh, I didn't, I didn't outright mention this in Islam when I covered that a few weeks ago, but it is certainly works-based, just like all of these worldviews that I'm going to be covering today in Islam. Um, if, when you die, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you will get to paradise. But the most, uh, the, the surest way to get into paradise is to die as a martyr. But otherwise, your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. In Hinduism, there is karma, and so there is reincarnation. You keep dying and coming back and dying and coming back because you pay and you pay and you pay and you pay until eventually you have worked off all of your bad karma. So th this is another aspect that is different from the Christian worldview in that the physical is not nearly as important because you just keep shedding bodies. You might be, you know, that cow or that rat might be your great-great-grandmother that has come back because he, she lived a bad life, and so now she has to come back as a lower life form and pay more of her karma. An interesting aspect of the karmic system is that it really breeds a lack of mercy and charity, because if you are paying off your karma, then somebody ought not help you because you need to pay off that karma. Because you, when you come back in the next life, hopefully you've paid off some of that karma and you will be able to come back as something better or, or work, toward, work toward ultimately paying off your, your karma. When people do do nice things for one another, that too is not out of love or out of the goodness of your heart necessarily, but it is doing a good deed to, to help you again in that karmic cycle. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many of you will hear from time to time they will talk about that there is a um, reincarnated, a, a person who is, the, who is Jesus reincarnated who will appear from time to time in India. And I was listening to um, this apologetics podcast and, and the, apologet the apologist made the point if Jesus can't get out of the karmic cycle of reincarnation, what hope does literally anyone have? Because Hindus, whomever, no one is going to think ill of Jesus. Everyone thinks Jesus, at the very least, is a good moral teacher. And if he's stuck in the cycle of reincarnation, well, I mean, we're, we're kind of all doomed at that point. Um, one mention of some scriptures that they have, the Vedas are, are some of the scriptures that they have. they have. They have multiple different scriptures depending on, again, Hinduism being very broad. Um, so the Vedas are one of the scriptures, and I mention them only because of they will also be mentioned in Buddhism, which we're going to get to in just a second. They, um, they were developed between 15 and 1600 BC, and they were transmitted orally for thousands of years before they were written down. Um, Gary Habermas, in his uh, resurrection presentation that I, that I um, talked about several weeks ago on Easter Sunday, he mentioned the Upanishads, which are also another Hindu scripture. So they, they have a lot of different scriptures that they can pick and choose from whichever whichever they like, but the Vedas are are the most the most prominent, I would say. 
So that is Hinduism in a very small nutshell. Now we're gonna move on to Buddhism. Buddhism is non-theistic. Now, I'm not saying atheistic, it is not atheistic, although uh, Buddha was an atheist. But it is non-theistic in the sense that God is not necessary. Over the, over the thousands of years, there, there have been theistic forms of Buddhism that have arisen because Buddhism also is not monolithic. There is not one, this is Buddhism and that's it. But, but in the Buddhist system, it, it, uh, God is not necessary. So it is, it is much more of a philosophy than it is a religion. And Buddha himself was really not concerned with the afterlife, um, with nirvana, which is the, the goal of Buddhism. He's, he said, well, nirvana is the goal, but we don't really know what happens after we die, and I'm not really concerned about it anyway. So um, God, the afterlife, etc., not not um, not very con concerning to Buddha. Buddha or Buddhism came out of Hinduism. Buddha rejected the caste system and he rejected the authority of the Vedas. So the 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 Vedantic scriptures, he rejected the authority that they had over people and he also rejected the caste system. So in Buddhism there is no caste system um, obviously. Now I have up here the Four Noble Truths because they're basically the most important thing in Buddhism that you, you will learn as a, as a Buddhist. And I brought this up last week too in The Problem of Evil that in Buddhism, the issue of suffering is that it's because you want things. As you see up there on the first noble truth, life is suffering. And, you know, in, in these Four Noble Truths, you can see that there is some truth to that. It's not that, it's not that in a lot of these worldviews, they're just patently false and you can look at them and say, wow, that is just a load of hogwash. A lot of times people will get, will get drawn into these worldviews because it resonates with some aspect of reality that they see. We see suffering in the world. We see that some people, many people in fact, over the history of humanity have lived just lives of suffering and then they die. So when, when, when Buddhism says life is suffering, a lot of people say, yeah, I get that. Life really is suffering. So what is the solution S or the, the problem? Suffering is caused by desire. We desire things, whether they're good things or bad things. Some people desire love and relationship, to know and be known, to have a family, to, to, um, to do good things in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. Other people will desire, um, will desire power and a money and a career and will step on people. And so the, the Buddhist teaching is that suffering is caused by desire. And so to banish suffering, banish desires. Just stop wanting things. That's, that's the solution in Buddhism to suffering. And then once you banish desires and end suffering, you follow the Noble Eightfold Path. I was not gonna put that up there because any, you know, anybody can find that anywhere. And if you wanna look more into the Noble Eightfold Path, definitely feel free to do so. But the interesting thing that I've found in the Buddhists that I've talked to is that they don't really live this way. 
Because if we're honest, how does anyone live a life and not want anything? How do you, how do you live a life and not want the best for your children if you have children? How do you not want love? How do you, not, how do you just stop wanting things? And even if, if any of you ever start going down this path of apologetics and start listening to Ravi Zacharias, uh, Ravi Zacharias, of course, is, uh, is uh, Indian from, from India. He knows a lot about these Eastern, Eastern religions, and he talks about he spent a lot of time with some Buddhist monks in studying for a book that he wrote several years ago, and, and he asked them, well, doesn't the Dalai Lama want the things that he wants? He wants world peace. He wants Tibet to be free. He wants, and this was asked several years ago, and the answer was, well, he chooses, he just chooses to do so. So even the Dalai Lama wants things. So I, this, is, this is their worldview. Nirvana is the goal of, of Buddhism, again, we're not really clear what, what, what that entails, what the afterlife entails. And a difference in, another difference in Buddhism from Hinduism is that in Buddhism there is rebirth, which is different from reincarnation. It may sound the same, but it's different. Um, and, and there is rebirth and rebirth and rebirth in the goal toward nirvana. But the thing with Buddhism is that there's no self to go on to the next birth. You just die and then there's some rebirth of something, but there, you, you, you are not a self that, like in Hinduism, you die and you are reincarnated to pay off the karma and to keep paying and to keep paying. Whereas in Buddhism, you die, and then there's some rebirth, but it's not you because there's no you to go on into the next into the next uh, cycle. So the 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 thing is that you have to break the illusion that you have a self in the first place in order to abandon cravings and find relief release from your sufferings. So this is, um, in, in all honesty, and I'm not, I'm not an expert, I don't have a ton of people in my life who are Buddhists, but I just don't see a consistency in living according to this in Buddhism. I'm sure that there are, I'm sure that there are people who are deeply involved in, in Buddhism, but I remember one time, because I have these kind of conversations, a long time ago, I was having this pedicure, and um, I was—I try to engage them and, and talk to anybody I can, really. And she told me that she was a Buddhist, and um, and I so I tried to ask her about Buddhism. I tried to engage her on this and ask her about this aspect of not wanting things and ending suffering because we need to stop wanting things. And she literally didn't know what I was talking about. She'd never heard of that, and she said that wasn't a Buddhist teaching. I, I mean, I knew enough to know that it was a Buddhist teaching. It's one of the primary Buddhist teachings because it's part of the Four Noble Truths that is, I mean, that's like saying if you're a Christian and you don't know what the gospel is or you don't know who Jesus is, that's, it's kind of an, an, an equation there. So that is, that is Buddhism. 
we're going to have to move on to Jehovah's Witnesses now. Jehovah's Witnesses are non-Trinitarian. They, unlike uh, Mormonism, which is the next one, Mormonism is polytheistic, but Jehovah's Witnesses are simply non-Trinitarian. They, they believe in God, but it's one God because um, Jesus is not God and the Holy Spirit is not God. The Holy Spirit, in fact, is just an impersonal force. So um, they believe that Jesus... Jesus in the Old Testament is Jehovah. I'm sorry, that is, that is um, Mormonism. Jesus was created by Jehovah as the archangel Michael. So when he, when he um, rose from the dead, for example, he rose spiritually and not physically. And he is at, he is at that point the archangel Michael. Jesus is not God. And... Um, like I said, the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force that, that um, he is not a distinct person. Since, since there is no Trinity, therefore, the Holy Spirit is not God. The Holy Spirit is merely an impersonal force. They also have their own translation of the Bible. If you ever see uh, the New World Translation, that is the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the Bible. They have made some changes to uh, go along with their doctrine, but not consistently. Not consistently. I was at the um, apologetics conference last month. Yeah, we're still in May last month. And um, I was talking to this guy, and he had a copy of the New World Translation, and he showed on where one page in John, they had changed the pronoun reference of the Holy Spirit to it, but then you turn the next page and the Holy Spirit is referred to as he. So even, they, even in the changes that they've made in their own New World Translation, I think either, I mean, they must have just missed some because clearly in, in Jehovah's Witnesses, um, it, it is a doctrine that the Holy Spirit is merely an impersonal force. Here's a couple of, here's a couple of uh, examples. In John 1.1, 1, 1, now again, they are, they they do believe in God. They're not polytheistic. So this is an interesting thing. Why they would change it this way? It says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God." Now, not being polytheistic, you wonder, well, why why would they put a God when they don't believe in multiple gods? But they had to make these changes in Colossians one fifteen through seventeen they added the word other four times in there because it's talking about Jesus and Jesus cannot be an, the uncreated creator. They had to make him as part of the creation because in their doctrine, God created Jesus. So it says, he is the image of, he being Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on earth, things invisible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things and by means of him, all other things were made to exist. There are other verses that have been changed in Genesis, Zechariah, Hebrews, and more. Um, to go along with their, with their doctrine, the, these doctrines. 
only members of their organization are saved. And really, they, they say that it's the 144,000 in the book of Revelation that are really, really the ones that are saved. I haven't really heard a clear answer as to what about all the other members of the Jehovah's Witnesses organization that clearly far exceed 144,000. So I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. Um, but again, it's workspace, which is why you get them arriving on your door and doing the things that they do, because that's, that's what they need to do. They need to do good works. They are also what are called annihilationists. They believe that um, when, when Paul talks about those who have gone asleep, um, they, they will say, well, that just means that you're, you're just wiped out after death. It, particularly if you are not saved. If you are not saved, God just wipes you out and you are annihilated and there is no eternal conscious torment, which is really what is taught in scripture. Which, I mean, to me, that sounds pretty good. If if you are if you are not a believer and you are and you want to go out and you want to talk to people about where you're coming from it is much nicer to say well you know god god just wipes people out when if if they reject him they're just annihilated after death and they cease to exist because hell is a really offensive doctrine to people and, and there is so much pushback on, on the idea of hell and why, you know, what is God just torturing people? Uh, why is there an eternal, why is there an eternal punishment for temporal crimes? It's, it's highly offensive. So, you know, from a logical standpoint, it's nicer to say, yeah, you're just wiped out. You're not going to be eternally tormented. <laughs> not tortured, but tormented. So that is, that is Jehovah's Witnesses in, in, yes. I actually don't. I knew, uh, the question was, uh, how, how does not giving blood transfusions or blood transplants tie into that? No, I don't know that. I'll, I, want to know that though, so I will definitely look into that. Yes, Jeff. Here. Thank you. I, I've forgotten a lot of this stuff, but I think it has something to do with the life of the flesh is in the blood, kind of a text out of Leviticus or somewhere, you know, they don't do Christmas and a whole lot of other stuff. Right, so yeah, they don't do Christmas, I, holidays, birthdays, they don't do any of that. I, I think you could probably Google that very quickly, but I think it has something to do with that, that it's... Thank you. Good question. And now we will move on to the fourth one, Mormonism, um, because that will take up a little bit more time. Mormonism, um, Mormonism, I want to say right off the bat, before we get into this scratching of the surface of Mormonism, because there is a lot to Mormonism that we just simply can't get into this morning. But I want to say right off the bat, I, I really am convinced that a lot of the Mormons, the new Mormons, 
that just are attracted to the idea of, oh, here's this really nice community. They're all about family. They do things for one another, et cetera, et cetera. I am convinced that a lot of them don't know these things until they get into it further because it's very clear that the LDS Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, really tries to portray itself as a Christian denomination. We're just another denomination, just like, just like you Presbyterians, just like Baptists, just like Methodists. We're just another denomination. Um, those who are really in it know better, but I'm really convinced that those who just find their way in because some nice Mormon missionary came to their door and said, look, and they bring their King James version of the Bible. Look, here's the Bible. Um, can we do anything for you? Do you need your gutters cleaned? Can we do yard work for you, et cetera, et cetera? And it's very attractive because people want community. They really want community. And so I want to say that right off the bat, that I don't think that um, a lot of them know these things until they get into it a long way. So Mormonism came about because according to Joseph Smith, Jesus showed up to him and said that the church was an abomination and needed to be started over again with, with the Mormon church. Now, of course, as you'll see, there are a lot of direct contradictions to scripture in Mormonism. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But Joseph Smith said that Jesus said that the church had become an abomination and needed to be started over. So right off the bat, it's a problem when you have Jesus contradicting himself. They are polytheistic and really polytheistic. Polytheistic to the point that, um, that the Trinity are three separate gods, not a trinity at all, um, God the Father is one God, Jesus is a separate God, the Holy Spirit is a separate God, and that God the Father used to be a man and attained Godhood, and furthermore, they can do the same thing. Well, the men can. The, the men can attain Godhood um, by, doing, by doing all the things. So they're really, really polytheistic. There's, no, there's simply no way around that. Um, the, the phrase that, that is pretty well known in Mormonism is, as man now is, listen to this, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be. So you, you and I are mankind. Well, God used to be that way. And the way God is now, we can be that way. So when you, when you, but when you bring up the Bible, and, and by the way, have a King James Version Bible in your house because that is the one that they, that they um, will listen to. It's, I, I'm sh they're really nice people, so I'm sure that if you bring out your, your ESV, they're not going to say, oh, we're not going to listen to that. But it's nice. If, if Mormon missionaries come to your door, have your King James Version. Use your King James Version with the, with the Mormon missionaries. So if you pull out your King James Version and you say, well, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Then they're going to say, well, the Bible is correct as far as it is correctly translated. So that is their out whenever you want to bring up any scriptural reference. You know, that they, uh, they say that marriage is eternal. You will be married in, in the eternities with your spouse if you were married in the temple. Well, Jesus, of course, says 
no, there's no marriage in, in heaven. You'll be like the angels. They're, they are polytheistic. We see in the Psalms over and over and over and over and over again, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. So you have these, these a lot of contradictions, but they just, they just simply say, well, the Bible is correct as far as it is correctly translated. And so they, since the Bible is only as correct as it is, as far as it is correctly translated, they also have other scriptures. They have the Pearl of Great Price. They have Doctrine and Covenants. They do have the Book of Mormon, which they will hand to you. That's a pretty famous thing. They will hand it to you when they come to your door. And what they will say is, will you read the Book of Mormon? And will you pray and ask the Lord to give you a burning in the bosom? And that will testify to you that it is the truth. Now, the Book of Mormon isn't really the, their highest scriptures. The Book of Mormon is really just an account that they say of Jesus showing up to people in North America. Now, the problem with the Book of Mormon is that there is zero archaeological evidence for it whatsoever. They describe large civilizations in there that, that took place in North America when Jesus showed up to the Native Americans and not one shred of archeological evidence at all. But you pray and so, so it's, it's a lot of narrative, like what we see in, in the history books in the Old Testament, it's a lot of narrative like that. And they'll say, here, would you please read this and, and pray and ask and get the burning in the bosom. They will also, they also say, Interestingly enough, in their accounts in the Book of Mormon, they say that um, the Native Americans are descendants of Jews. Now, simple DNA tests demonstrate that Native Americans are not descendants of Jews. So it's, it's, it's just a, it's an accumulation of all of this. They claim this, facts show this, they claim this, facts show this. It's, it's, it's a problem. There are three levels of heaven. There's the celestial, the terrestrial, and the telestial. The celestial heaven is where you attain godhood. You, you do all the things. You, um, that is the highest heaven for the good Mormons, and you, that's where you attain your godhood. Now, it's, uncomfortable, it's a bit uncomfortable to say, but they literally believe that you will, once you attain godhood, you and your spirit wife will literally have relations and you will have spirit children just like God the Father did here when he had, when he had physical relations with the spirit mother and had all these spirit children because we are all spirit children. Jesus was the first spirit child and Lucifer was the second spirit child, so Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. That's a bit of a problem. Um, and we all pre-existed in heaven. Now, I, I remember talking to a, a, and again, they're so nice. They're such nice people. I was out gardening, this was several years ago, and um, this Mormon missionary came up and, and uh, we started to have a conversation and I asked him about this whole idea of pre-existence, that we pre-exist in heaven with the Father because the, the father and the mother have spirit children and we're spirit children and then we come down. I said, now, wh why would we want to leave heaven? 
if we're, if we're in heaven beforehand, why on earth would we want to leave? And he said, well, you know, it's just like your kids. Um, there are things that you have to do, things that you have to, you have to accomplish, etc." I said, yeah, but our kids don't come back because you say that kids, you know, will then come back and our kids don't come back. And so it was a, it's a peculiar thing because I think if I'm with, if I'm with God beforehand, I'm not going to be wanting to come down here because I'm going to look down here and say, mm-mm, I, I don't want any part of that. Thank you anyway. Now, the most important thing to remember, well, one of the most important things to remember when you are talking to any Mormon is that they use all the same words and they have all different meanings. I, um, I can send you my notes um, if you want, but this is all over the internet if you want to look for these. I'm just going to go over several terms that are key terms to us because we can talk right past each other if we're using all the same terms, Godhead, Trinity, salvation, atonement, etc. And, and they mean one thing and we mean something entirely different. So don't worry about memorizing all of this because this is, I can send it to you or it's on the internet. You can easily find it. God. God only means one of countless gods in all existence. The term Elohim is what they mean for God the Father. Jesus was Jehovah in the Old Testament. So uh, being polytheistic, that is, that is um, all they mean by God. He's one of many gods. Also, he has a body of flesh and bones, as in God the Father has a body of flesh and bones because that's, he needs a body of flesh and bones to produce spirit children. Godhead, the Godhead is the three separate gods of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Jesus, as I covered before, he's the literal offspring of God the Father. He is one God in the Godhead, and uh, he is the first spirit child to be born to the father and mother gods. So the Holy Ghost, though, the, and the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit are two different things. The, the quote from um, in Mormon Doctrine by Bruce McConkie said, the Holy Ghost is a spirit man. He can only be at one place at one time. He is contrasted, the Holy Ghost is contrasted with the Spirit of God, which is the influence of the Godhead that fills the immensity of space. So the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit are two different things. The Holy Ghost can only be in one place at one time. The Holy Spirit is, is the presence of God that fills everything. Um, the gospel, the gospel is the laws and ordinances of the Mormon church. That's what they mean by gospel. Um, heaven, I already covered heaven. Uh, the the um, terrestrial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom is for moral people. Because I, I covered the celestial kingdom. The celestial kingdom is for where you attain godhood. The terrestrial kingdom, the t terrestrial kingdom is for moral people and lukewarm Mormons, and the telestial, the telestial kingdom is for everyone else. Hell, on the other hand, is the temporary abode in the spirit world between death and the resurrection. For those awaiting telestial glory, but hell will come to an end. Atonement is the sacrifice of Christ that made resurrection possible along with the possibility of our earning forgiveness for our sins. 
So you'll hear the word atonement again. It does not mean what we mean when we say it. Baptism is a necessary ordinance for salvation in the Mormon church. By it, sins are washed away. An important distinction in Mormonism is that when you, when you are saved and you accept the atonement and you're baptized, your sins are washed away, but those, it's those past sins. Once you continue to sin, you know, because we're human and we live life, that doesn't count for all of that going forward. Um, the Bible, I already covered the Bible. The scripture, when, when they talk about scriptures, they are talking about the Bible, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Um, yeah, and Pearl of Great Price. Doctrine and Covenants are a multi-volume set. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of documentation, and I haven't gotten into this, but it does evolve over time. It changes. Eternal life means exaltation. Exaltation to a Mormon means obtaining godhood in the celestial kingdom. So that's what eternal life means to a Mormon. Damnation, if they talk about damnation, that's basically anything lesser than being exalted as a god. And pre-existence, uh, I already covered pre-existence. We, we are literally in heaven with a literal father and mother. Yes, Bob, could you? Thank you. And by the way, this is a great place to segue. Anybody else who has questions, um, feel free. So on the um, pre-existence question, mm -hmm. if God was a man, where did man come from in the first place? That's a good question, isn't it? God, because God, God had to, there is seemingly an infinite regress because God had to, God the Father had to attain Godhood from following the laws and ordinances of his God who had to attain Godhood from following the laws and ordinances of his God on his planet, because we're all, we are all sent to different planets, of course. Wherever God the Father came from was not Earth. God the Father would have come from some other planet under some other God who was then sent here when he attained Godhood. You're good to go. So I assume that if a husband goes to heaven becomes God, his mm -hmm. wife remains married to him in eternity. Eternity, yes. What about single women? What happens to them? They're out of luck. They're out of luck. That's so they just... have to get married to, to be yes. saved. Yes, they have to. Yeah, Ouch. they have. To, yeah, they have to be married. Yes. important doctrine? They, what, what is then? So the question was that uh, if the Book of Mormon isn't the most important scripture to them, why do they bring it to you? Um, they don't actually say when they bring it to you that this is our most important book. Um, it's certainly the most easiest, the most easily accessible because it's stories. It's, it's, um, it's easy to read and um, they're not going to bring you their multi-volume set of the Doctrine and Covenants. And, and um, it's not, 
I'm trying to be charitable. Um, it's not the most. It's not the most controversial either. I mean, if they if they if they actually brought you, imagine imagine if if a Mormon missionary came and said, "Would you please come to our church? We'd love to have you come to our church. Would you like to attain godhood?" And, um, and be married forever in, in heaven, and you can work off your salvation by doing good works because you're saved by grace after all you can do. That, that is in their scriptures, that, that yes, we are saved by grace after all we can do. So it's, it's the easiest to read, and um, I think it's the most palatable and the most n not weird I, I mean, because if you if you get more if you get deeper and deeper into their theology, you you realize just how different it is from from Christianity. And they want to say, "Oh, Mormons are Christians," but if you say, "Well, if I'm a Christian, does that make me a Mormon?" They'll say, "Well, no." And uh, and so I, I think that that's why. And they don't say that this is our most important scripture. Okay, and then really quick, I know this is probably a whole other study, but elevator speech version, how do you reach out to a Mormon? What, what's the most effective way, the argument that is most persuasive? I am not certain that there is a most important or, or most persuasive because everyone's different and everyone's in a different place. However, I have, um, I ha and and this is really a long-term kind of a thing because they, I mean, they are trained. If a Mormon missionary comes to your door, they have been trained for years of the resistance that they are going to, to encounter. So anything you say to them, they're just going to, you know, oh, this is just part of the resistance. So, um, however, they are very afraid of outer darkness. Outer darkness is um, really a bad situation to them. And if, again, I, I, in no way do we want to be manipulative or say things that just say certain key phrases, but if you do um, tell them that you're concerned that they are going to end up in outer darkness, that's, that is something that they do not want. They don't want to be in outer darkness. Yes? Oh yeah, yeah. They do. Uh, they do baptism for the dead. Barry, um, thank you for that. Um, and they and they pull from First Corinthians, where Paul just makes a side reference of, and you even baptize for the dead. And so they have this whole thing where they they baptize for the dead. Yes, Jeff. And then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, it, it really, thank you, Jeff. It really helps if in, in all of these counterfeit worldviews, the thing that's going to help you the most is for you yourself to know the truth. And then if you know, their, if you know what they believe, then you can graciously help them 
with, with questions and with pointing things out, etc. And Mormons want to talk about this stuff. Now, they want you to come to their church. So you want to say to them right off the bat, hey, I would love to have a conversation. Can You can present to me, and can I tell you some things that I believe too? Um, so that, um, but, but it, is, it is more of a long-term thing. You're not going to say one thing unless, unless they are ripe fruit that the Holy Spirit is just going to get them that day, and you say that one thing, and then they just they just are harvested right there, but, but otherwise it's more of a long-term thing. So we have to wrap up. I am going to uh, pray and um, definitely come up if you have any further questions, and I'm happy to, to talk to them to, or to discuss them with you. Father, thank you that we have been able to cover these, these different worldviews, these different ideas, and I ask, Father, that uh, if you are going to bring these people into our lives, that you would help us to be more and more equipped so that we could speak to them with grace and truth and with gentleness and with respect, and that um, you would help us to reach them with, with your truth, and we ask that you would remove the scales from their eyes and and release, release them from the captivity that they are held captive to by the God of this world. Would you help us to continue to be good ambassadors for you, to be salt and light, and help us to worship you more and more in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.